Philippians chapter 2, and we're in 3, excuse me, chapter 3. Uh, we actually have finished chapter 2. I, I'm so used to saying 2. Uh, we, we had so much to be able to kind of milk out of that uh, last few verses there that I'm so used to saying chapter 2. But it's chapter 3, and we'll be reading um, verse 1. But let me say in uh, preface, in the science of medicine, and I'm going to take us on a, just a little, a little track here for just a moment to set this up before we read verse 1. In the science of medicine, which we've all had some experience with, some more than others, uh, my wife has just had some experience with that, there's a phenomenon known as the half-life of medication. The half-life of medication. We heard the same term uh, when we were in science class, when we were in school, uh, taking, Mark taking us back to VBS days and when we were younger. And when we studied uh, science and we studied uh, something about atomic energy and something called radioactivity, and we discovered that radioactivity had something called, had a component to it called half-life. You remember the term, half-life of uh, radioactive material. The idea of a half-life when it comes to medicine is a pretty important um, piece for us to think about because it has an effect on our bodies. Uh, when we use a particular medication. Let me explain with a quote from a website called, just simply called MIND, M-I-N-D. It's a charitable health, uh, mental health website. And I took this uh, definition to help us a little bit in answering this question, what is a drug's half-life? What is a drug's half-life? And here's what they said on their website, and I quote, the half-life of a drug is the time it takes uh, for the amount of it in your body to be reduced by half. This depends on how the body processes and gets rid of the drug and can vary from a few hours to a few days. No matter what dosage of a particular drug you're on or how long you've been taking it for, its half-life is always the same. So, question is, why does that matter? Why bring it up this morning as we prepare to study Philippians 3? Well, generally speaking of a drug's impact upon our body, it's pretty much finished, they tell us, by the fourth half-life. In other words, it divides in half once, and then then that half is divided again, then it's divided again, and then it's divided again. By the time it divides The fourth time, they're saying that for the most part, it's virtually useless. It's having no impact in your body. Knowing these kinds of computations is pretty important for us when we're dealing with things like acute pain or something that has a uh, life-threatening potential to it. You want to know that the medication that you're taking into your body to deal with the pain is going to last long enough uh, until that pain begins to dissipate and go away. Or if you have something, for example, that's chronic, that's, uh, it's life-threatening and you have to be on a, a particular drug for the rest of your life, you want to know how long does that dosage last? How long can I, can I, uh, expect its impact, its effect, uh, to be working inside my body? Alright, here's the question then. You know kind of how I approach truth, how I approach God's Word. 
Uh, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be interesting. I'm not trying to be entertaining. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to be relevant. Relevant stuff for us. So here's the question. What does this have to do with Philippians? Isn't that a good question? So here we go. We're going to read just one verse this morning, but I want us to remember the context of this verse coming right out of chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing here, he's writing this verse, and he has just sent his buddy. Who's his buddy? Epaphroditus. Let's try it one more time. Epaphroditus, okay. He's just sent his buddy Epaphroditus back home to the home church in Philippi. Paul is in Rome, 800 miles away, chained to a prison guard. Epaphroditus was sent by the home church to comfort him, come alongside him. But Epaphroditus is now being sent back home, and uh, Paul is going to be left. So his friend, having been sent by the church to comfort him, is leaving early for whatever reason. We, we surmise maybe homesickness, maybe some other thing that's going on. And here's what Paul basically says to him in chapter 2. Don't worry, Philippian church. You sent him to comfort me. I'm sending him back. Don't worry. Don't be sad. You meant well sending him to me in the first place. I, I deeply appreciate your heart, and I deeply appreciate him. And for the time that he has been here with me, it has been such a blessing to me. And so instead of sadness... Receive him with joy and give him high honor because he gave it his best. And he nearly died trying to do that. So you church, don't be sad when he gets home. Rejoice is what Paul says. All right, now that's the background. Let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writing to the Philippian church now. Finally... My brethren, that means the true church. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now this morning, I'm just going to concentrate on that first first sentence there. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord willing, next week, if it works out okay, the Lord is pleased, I'm going to talk to us about the second part of that verse, but just tuck that away. We'll get to that hopefully next week. The word finally there, finally, finally, that word finally might better be translated furthermore. Now, why do I say that? Well, you're smart. You can tell. Philippians has four chapters. How many have we finished? Two. So we are how far? Halfway. So he's not finally at all. <laughs> not really. What he's saying is, furthermore, let me add to this. Let me, let me continue in this vein that I've been talking to you about. It's sort of like what happens when most speakers, including the one that's in front of you today, when they say something like, in closing or in conclusion this morning, which means nothing in terms of the clock, what it really means is there's more to come before you can get up and go to lunch. That's what it really means. 
But that's, that's really what he's saying. I, I, I'm only halfway through the message that I'm sending back to you. So in, in continuance, in, in the same vein, uh, furthermore, I, I have these things to, to add to you. So that's kind of why he says that finally there's a little misleading. So Paul tells the church at Philippi to rejoice. Look what he says. Rejoice in the Lord as Epaphroditus returns home. Now, this seems like just so much old history for just a second. But we're going to bring that down to some relevant stuff here for us right before we close. The subject of joy has already come up in the first two chapters, in the first two, first section, first half of this letter. It's already come up a number of times in Philippians. In fact, joy as a, as a noun or as a verb form comes up at least 150 times in the New Testament. This concept of joy as a noun or as a verb in a verb form over 150 times joy is the subject in the New Testament. And God wants us to experience joy over our lifetime, but that is once we understand that joy is not the same thing as happiness. And didn't we talk about that when we first started Philippians? Happiness and joy are not the same thing. And once we understand that the kind of joy Paul is talking about is rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it all begins to make sense to us. He says clearly, rejoice in the Lord. So I'd like you to repeat that phrase with me. Rejoice in the Lord. Now this time I want us to really almost like a praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. When we get to the word I-N, in, let's really stress that. You ready? Rejoice in the Lord. See, the rejoicing is in the Lord. It's in, that, that joy is in the Lord. The Greek word for Lord there is kurios. And it's the word that the disciples often used when they were talking to Jesus. Uh, kurios means Lord or Master. So they're talking to Jesus and they would say, Lord, uh, Master, what, is this, what does this parable mean? Would you explain this to, you, to us? Or, or uh, somebody said this to us. Or we tried to cast out this demon, Master, Lord, Kuras. Uh, tell, us, tell us why did this happen? Why, why weren't we able to cast these out or whatever? It's that same word they were speaking with Jesus. And so when we, be, listen, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, he becomes Kurios to us. He becomes Lord to us. When we ask Jesus Christ to save us, to come into our lives, He becomes Master, Lord to us. This is new. This is brand new. This is a new thing. So, well, who was the old Master? Self? The devil? Uh, We have this old Master that we grow up with. But when we are exposed to the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and he, he loved us so much that he died on the cross to cover our sins and he wants to have a relationship with us and be invited into our heart and, and that we change, we change gears and we, we, we begin to follow his teachings and, and his will. All of a sudden we have a new Lord. We have a new master. The joy Paul is speaking of here is a joy 
that comes in a relationship with Jesus, our new Lord, our new master, our old master has been put away. And it's in that relationship, it's in, now catch this, this is so important. You, you miss the whole meaning of what Paul is saying here to rejoice in the Lord if we miss this piece. It's in the relationship that we can have with Jesus as our new Lord and Master that there is a lasting joy that never goes away. Now, we haven't studied this yet because it's coming up in the last chapter, chapter 4. But I want us to turn ahead to just get a little preview for a second to see how this fits. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Here's what he says. We haven't studied it yet. It's coming up. But he says, rejoice. That joy. Rejoice in the Lord. How many times? Always. And again, I say, what? Rejoice. I mean, how much more clear can Jesus be uh, through Paul than to tell it twice like that? So, so okay, here's the, okay, let's get relevant then. What's the point? What, what is Paul trying to teach us here? Why are, you, why are you, you straining our time charity here a little bit with just one little phrase here in this very first verse? Don't you understand? It'll be long past summer before we get finished with this book if you keep doing this. This is vital because there's somebody in here doesn't have joy this morning. I promise you, in a crowd this size and on the internet with people poking around on that, there are people that do not have true, lasting joy in their life. They, they may have some momentary happiness from time to time, but they may not even have momentary happiness today. And you may be one of them. And, 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 and you wonder, what, what's wrong? What, what's wrong with my life? What, why, why is this happening to me? Why, why does it look like the people in front of me, beside me, behind me, they all seem like they're, they've got joy and I don't have joy. And like what's going on in my life? So let me walk, walk through just a, a couple of thoughts here for us. Christian joy is not like medicine with a half-life. That was the point of telling you about half-life. Christian joy is not like medicine or radioactivity that has a half-life. Christian joy does not have a half-life that after the fourth division, it has virtually no effect upon our lives. I I, I hope we catch that principle. It it doesn't have a half-life. And and after the fourth uh, time that it divides, medicine, science tells us it's done. It has virtually no effect anymore. That's not the way Christian joy operates. Christian joy is not contingent upon the science of our universe. Christian joy is a product of obedience to God's command to rejoice in view of our relationship with the new master. In view of my relationship with my new Lord, in view of that relationship and all that it means, uh, if I am obedient to rejoice, I will have a joy that is, is not half-lifing its way away. That's what he's saying. Uh, from that act of obedience comes a reminder. 
to us this morning that our peace in life comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who gives us hope. It's Jesus who gives us gladness of heart. Even at times, feelings of intense inner happiness and well-being that's so much more than the mere happiness of the moment of life. There is no half-life that eventually drains us out of our joy. Now, I, I don't know if you really seized that or not. There is no half-life when it comes to Christian joy that eventually sees that drained out of the believer. Rejoicing is not a good mood. Rejoicing is not an emotional high. This is why I approach approach the teaching of God's Word in the way that I do. I do not say that it's better than anybody else's, but this is what I feel compelled to do. I feel compelled not to try to raise your emotions unduly or unnecessarily, prematurely, or even as authentically as I might be able to do that, because joy is not permanently fixed to emotion. It is not permanently affixed to your degrees of education. It is not permanently affixed to your vocation or the things that you do in life to to earn a living. It is not even affixed to uh, an emotional uh, moment of sadness or extreme happiness. It is affixed to the truth of God's Word. And so rejoicing is an act of obedience, Paul says, to Jesus, who has already won the victory for us at the cross. And any frustrations, now catch this, any frustrations that you and I have after we've, after we've asked Christ to be our, our new master, our new Lord, any, any frustrations that will happen between the point at which we invite Christ to be our Savior and the point at which we leave this earth, this life, like Charles Krauthammer did this week, any, any frustration, pain, or discomfort that we might experience after we have asked Jesus to be the new Lord and Master of our life is merely a temporary bump in the road to forever joy and gladness in heaven. Can I get an amen? Now, now we can know that intellectually, but practically, that's not always easy to do. So the first point in this chapter 3 that I want us to get, and that's the only point that I'm going to mention today, is this. That of the holding power of the Christian's joy. That's what Paul is helping us to see. The holding power of the Christian's joy. It's sort of like that commercial that I wish they would stop showing it. Maybe you do too. You know that teeter back inversion machine that turns you upside down to stretch your back and make you feel better? And I've always thought maybe I ought to get one of those, whatever. And they interview this guy that's a, a client. He's got one. And, and I, you can just hear him saying this over and over, like, like all the time that commercial ever runs. And he says, and you can't have it. It's one of my prized possessions. Remember him saying that? You have no clue what I'm talking about. Well, just trust me, there's a commercial out there. And, and this guy that has 
been blessed by this machine that turn, that will turn you upside down and let you be upside down for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and it's supposed to take pressure off of your spine. People who have back ailments and whatever claim that it, it really does help. And they're interviewing this guy, and he just says, and, and, you know, don't try to take it from me because I've used this, and, and it really helps, and it makes me happy, and, and it blesses me, and so you can't have it. It's a prize possession. You see, knowing that Jesus has saved me, in other words, the back machine works, Jesus' cross worked for us, it works, knowing that Christ has saved us from eternal judgment and doom has given us a reason to know a joy this world can't understand. And you can't really acquire it apart from Jesus. Now, I did not say that a person cannot experience joy in this life. And I certainly didn't want to confuse happiness with joy. We've already talked about that. But I tell you what, if it's not a heavenly joy based on a relationship with Jesus Christ... That joy can have a half-life, and it can divide four times, and it can walk right out of your life under the right pressure and under severe extremes. So here's some relevant stuff. In my own case, um, I had cancer, but I never lost my joy. Uh, I lost my father, but I never lost my joy. I lost my brother, but I never lost my joy. I lost my son, but I never lost my joy. This is relevant stuff. Here's what Paul might add. I was shipwrecked, almost died at sea, but I never lost my joy. I was bitten by a venomous snake. They thought I'd die, but I never lost my joy. I was thrown in jail and beaten a number of times, thought I was going to die, but I never lost my joy. And I'm still chained to a prison guard while Epaphroditus is on his way back home. My best buddy is going home, but I have not lost my joy. As a matter of fact, I want you to be rejoicing yourselves. The Greek word for rejoice is karete. It's something called present imperative for those of you who like to look that stuff up. And what it really means is calling believers to the continually habitual practice of rejoicing. And so one commentator says, neither Paul's imprisonment nor the Philippians' trials should eclipse their joy. So he's saying, not only do I still have joy, even though Epaphroditus is coming back, You're seeing the guy you sent out there who hadn't really finished the job and he's coming back and we want you to rejoice. I want you to rejoice even in the midst of his returning. And not only rejoice, but um, hold him in high honor and praise. It's so different in our world today. Now, it's no different from Paul's day, but it's, it's, you know, this is the day we're living. This is the year we're living. This is the... This is the week that we experience certain things that happen in history. And um, so trying to be relevant to this, I I was riding my bicycle toward Converse the other day. And you've heard me say this many times. I'll say it again in case you hadn't heard it. But 
I, I, I have to play something through my headphones because it, I have to have something that masks the, sign, the, the, the sound of my heavy breathing because it depresses me. So, so I play music to kind of keep, keep the sound of that from coming into my mind and say, no, why don't this just quit? That's far enough. Let's just go home. And, and so I play music. And this particular time, uh, I think it was Pandora was streaming music, whatever. And it happened to be on the Beatles channel. And so uh, as I'm tooling down the road and I'm listening to this old Beatles tune, I'm, I'm listening to the lyrics and I'm, I'm thinking about joy and I'm thinking about the lyrics and I'm thinking about what was, what was in the minds of people in the 60s when that song was written and, and you know, what's in our hearts and minds today as a culture and what we're dealing with and how does scripture, uh, how is it relevant for us and what can I say to the people on a Sunday morning that while we're trying to take this little verse apart and try to glean some truth from it that will make sense to them and they will say, you know, I'm glad Pastor talked about that. I hadn't really thought about that before. I really appreciate him putting that out there on the table. So I'm going to reflect on that a little bit this week and see if it draws me a little closer to Jesus or takes me a little deeper whatever. And so I was reminded of how happiness and joy are so different from one another as I'm listening to one of those songs. In fact, so many song lyrics hover. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but so many of the secular song lyrics hover over the notion that our true joy and our true happiness in life is totally governed by whether or not we have a happy relationship going on with a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, or a spouse, or a friend. And, uh, and so it just totally captivates our emotion sometimes. And it's hard to dredge up joy when there's turmoil going on in these kinds of relationships. And so this one particular song that, that popped in my mind, and I thought, I'm just going <laughs> to... McCartney and Lennon wrote this. Baby's good to me, you know. She's happy as can be, you know. She said, so, I'm in love with her and I feel fine. Baby, she's mine, you know. She tells me all the time, you know. She said, so, I'm in love with her and I feel fine. I'm so glad she's my little girl. She's so glad she's telling all the world that her baby buys her things. You know, he buys her diamond rings and you know, she said so. She's in love with me and I feel fine. Baby says she's mine, you know. She tells me all the time, you know. She said so. I'm in love with her. I feel fine. I'm so glad she's my little girl. She's so glad she's telling all the world that her baby buys her things, you know. He buys her diamond rings, you know. She said so. She's in love with me and I feel fine. She's in love with me and I feel fine. And that made them millions of dollars. (laughs) The only problem is the next song they write talks about why that relationship broke up, why we're off looking for another fix for joy. That's the problem with it, see? That's the problem. No. The science of the half-life of joy doesn't come into play when we have a secure relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. The science of the half-life of joy does not come into play when we have a secure relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So our talking points for lunch today, the topic that as you go to lunch and as you eat and think about, I've got to be back at 5.30 or 5 or 5.30, whenever it is, to start VBS. What, what's your lunch topic for, uh, going to be about today? What, what's, uh, what's your devotional thought this week that you're going to say, you know, pastor said something, and I, I want to go a little deeper on that. I want to, I'm going to study that a little bit this week on my own, with my own uh, d- devotional tools and, and, and that sort of thing, and pray about some of this stuff. So here's some, here's some thought-provoking questions from this little truth that Paul is telling, teaching the Philippian church, and he's teaching us that Christian joy doesn't have a half-life. When you really make Jesus Christ your Lord, your master, your new master, your new Lord, he will bring, because of what he did on the cross, a joy that does not half-life its way itself away. So here we go. Here's some, here's some just talking points for lunch. One, am I treating my joy in having a relationship with Jesus like it has a half-life? Do I, do I, I may not say that, but on the inside, when, when I don't have such positive things going on in my life right now, am I really operating as though it does have a half-life? Here's another one. Will the, you know, four times it divides and then it's of no use basically in your body? Will the fourth assault from the devil annihilate my joy in Jesus to the point I walk away from my faith? How many times have you felt this in your journey with Christ? It's like, because we hear it. We hear it here in the church office. We see it on the prayer cards once in a while. We find out about it as we explore your, what's going on in your lives as a part of pastoral ministry. And it is this. It's like, you know what? This person just had this happen, and then this happened, and then if that wasn't enough, then this happened, and then the transmission went out, and then it's like, how many assaults does the devil have to put on you and I before we start acting like Christian joy really does have a half-life, and it's going to totally depart from us? We don't mean to believe that, and we don't even want to believe it sometimes, but sometimes we behave that way. And we get so let ourselves get so discouraged, we forget that this is an abiding presence for the rest of our lives till we go to heaven. Amen? That joy should be there. People say, how in the world can you still talk about the love of Jesus Christ and believing in the power of prayer and believing in the power to heal people's bodies and your own family member left you from a disease? How can you muster up any joy from having to walk through that assault that the enemy brings into our lives and said, it says, you don't have any joy. Look what happened to you. And you ask God for something big and for something really good and for something for somebody else's mercy. And he said, no. How can you still have joy? Because it, it doesn't have a half-life. It's, e- it's, it's either in there and it's forever or it's not in there. And then you need to check what we're going to talk about next week. And that is, that's why the New Testament spends all kinds of time going over it and over it and over it and over it. Are you truly saved? Not to scare the life out of us, but to make sure that we have really solidly developed that relationship with Jesus Christ. Because once we have, and once you're convinced of it, 
You don't have to worry about that half-life business. Oh, you might get really sad. You might go through a period of time when you need people to really come alongside you and pray for you and say, God, have mercy on them. And this is so hard to have this happen in their life. But it doesn't go away. That Christian joy is always there. Here's another talking point. What disaster in this life could take away my joy? Here's another one. Am I treating occasional unhappiness as though it was the same thing as true joy? If I'm feeling pretty unhappy about something, does that mean I don't have joy? I have people do that sometimes to me. They'll come up and they'll try to read my face, my body language, and say, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I go, nothing. So, well, why do you have that look on your face? Well, I didn't know I was looking a certain way, but if you say I do, okay. Uh, well, what's it look like? Well, it looks serious. It looks somber. Said, well, I am serious. I am somber. I am disappointed about something that's maybe somebody didn't do well or some, some, some uh, hopeful thing it didn't occur the way that we hoped that it would. And I have this concern and I have this soberness. But if you're going to suggest that I don't have any joy, well, you made a big mistake. Because I do have joy. And so do you sometimes. So that's why you need to be careful not you know, reading too much into people's body language. Because you never really know, you know, what's in there. Uh, if I'm letting creature comforts or relational difficulties impact my joy, do I really have a relationship with Jesus Christ? No, you know, I asked God because I didn't want so-and-so to die from this sickness or from this accident. And I'm just going to tell you, you know, if he, if he lets them die, that's it. Is Paul teaching us that we may cry through the night over an anguishing life experience, but true joy comes in the morning, not just because we woke up on the right side of the bed that morning, but because there's something rooted in scriptural truth that says Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger, in other words, not God being angry so much with us as that he allows certain things to touch our lives that grooms us, grows us. It, it, and some of it's hard, some of it's painful, some of it, some of it we, are, we studied Acts. We know some of the stuff that happened to Paul wasn't pleasant. We would, none of us would want to go through it, but it shaped him and it molded him. And, and as a result of that, he's taught us some wonderful truths through God's inspiration. For his anger, his letting things touch us is but for a moment. It's just for a little while. His favor is for a lifetime. This, this new Lord, this new master, his favor at, that started at the cross when, he, when, it, when, when Jesus died for what we, we owed. It started there and his favor is on us and it will never leave us. So it says weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. So true joy in this life comes from the discipline of practicing obedience to Jesus' instructions to abide in him. These are his instructions to the, to the brothers and sisters, the true brothers and sisters. If you are challenged in your joy this morning, or if one comes down the road next month, or if you've just come out of one and you're wondering, how do, how do I process all of that? True joy in this life comes from the discipline 
of practicing obedience to the truth of what God's Word says and His instructions to abide in Him. See, Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. Abide in Him. Because Him, Jesus, is the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. What He's already done for us. There's a joy that's there. He said, we were to be like branches connected to this vine. And the branch finds its nourishment in its relationship to the vine. And if we're like a branch that's grafted into the vine, which is Jesus Christ, then Jesus says the joy that he has, does Jesus have joy? He does. The scripture tells us that that God's favor rests upon the obedience of his son in doing what the father instructed the son to do, which he didn't really want to do in the flesh because he said, Father, if I don't have to go to the cross, I would like to not have to do that. And the father said, no, that's what you need to do. And he said, okay, then I gladly do it. If we're like a branch grafted into the vine, which is Jesus, then Jesus says the joy he has in his father's affirmation and care is a joy that feeds our veins intravenously. It comes through us. That's why I say that joy cannot half-life. There's no half-life in Christian joy. Happiness, different. Christian joy, no. John 15, 11 says this. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy, this is Jesus, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You see how how all this fits? So next time, Lord willing, you know, we're going to see why so much of the New Testament is rooted in knowing that we are truly in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, That's for next time. Not a hope so, not a think so, not a wishful thinking relationship, but a real and authentic scripturally based understanding, which is exactly what we're going to do our best to expose these kiddos to for these next four nights. To expose them to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that can bring them not only a forgiveness, but a joy that can last them a lifetime, no matter what may happen in their life. A real and authentic scripturally based understanding that you and I are truly grafted into Jesus, who is the true vine and source of our lasting joy. And so he says in 1 John 5.13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So my heart is that no matter what you may be facing, do not allow the enemy of your faith. And I'm talking to the true brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not allow the enemy of your faith to fool you into thinking that you have lost your joy. Sometimes people need time to grow. Sometimes people need to reaffirm their relationship with Christ. Sometimes people need to get off the backslidden bench and get back in the game. And if you're on the bench, and if you're in somewhat of a laid back, I hate to use the word backslidden, but not really where you need to be with Jesus, you'll know it because you will see, you will feel that joy beginning to to slip away. And we're here to remind you of God's truth, that if you're truly saved, that joy will never leave you. And eventually, he will bring you up.
You believe for that? Amen? You believe that? You need to walk out of these doors believing that because if you don't, then the people you work with and the people you live beside and the people who know you are never going to find any hope in you because you're no different than them. It's just one happiness to the other. And we might as well sing an old Beatles song. And it's all based on my girlfriend staying true to me until she wasn't true to me. And then life wasn't any good anymore. Then I had to go find another girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever. And I had to buy some stuff for her to make her happy and to try to keep hold of her and to try to keep it, you know, this, that, and the other. And what a silly, what a silly, foolish way to live our lives chasing joy. That's not joy. Joy is finding peace through Christ at the cross. And if you don't know him, you can know him today by just inviting him into your heart and say, I I need that kind of a new Lord and master in my life. That's what I want. How can I do that? Next week, Lord willing, unless he changes something for me, I'm going to do my best to remind people how to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. We'll be glad to tell you that today because of time. We're not going to take it right now. But we'd be glad to pray with you after the service if you let us know. Pastor Jim's here. We've got some other staff that are here. Our pastors are here. Be happy to do that. And if you're struggling with uh, that joy, uh, I, I just want to encourage you. Be encouraged. That joy didn't go anywhere. And it's not half-lifing its way out of your life. You will have joy again. Just be obedient and rejoice in what Jesus has already done on the cross for you. And he will bring it back to you fresh and alive and in abundance, pressed down and running over the side. Let's stand. Heavenly Father, uh, what, a, what a fun subject for us to study this morning. Um, in the quietness of this place, um, to be reminded of how wonderful it is to be grafted into Jesus and to be able to experience the joy that he has from you that can flow through our very veins is a is a such a precious thought. And Father, uh, the devil's probably working on somebody. He's been working on somebody all this week, maybe for a while now, trying to discourage them and trying to give them a, a, a thought in their mind that somehow they'll never be uh, joyous again. They'll never find any kind of uh, happiness, even though that's different from true joy trying to beat them down and bringing one wave of assault after another and another and another and another. But Lord, we don't believe it for a second. We know that what you did at the cross has brought us a true joy and that any discomfort until we get to heaven is just simply a bump in the road until you call us home. Until then, I pray that those who are going through adversity and challenge and difficulty will be refreshed just like the man that's going through a hard place and he said I can't face even being at church today I'm so I'm so discouraged I can't even be around people and he sent me a note early this morning and before I ever preach this truth to this people I sent him the whole manuscript by email and I pray God that the truths in this in this message will be an encouragement to his joy this morning And I pray that for everyone in the sound of my voice today. Cause us to have a better spring in our step today. May we leave this place uh, with a greater exuberance than we came into this place. Because you've reminded us 
of the great possibilities that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Help us to be obedient, to rejoice in the Lord always. And I say rejoice. And I ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.